Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio with your host, myself, Ian Dunigan. Today is a special episode where we will be answering listener questions from a recent webinar that I conducted for BASIS, the British Association of Sports and Exercise Science, that was hosted by Human Kinetics. So, let's get into these questions. I'm going to tackle probably 40 to 50% of these today if I can. The first question comes from Alex in the United Kingdom, and Alex is a personal trainer. What are your favorite sleep supplements? Alex asks. So, my favorite sleep supplements, well, it depends. Um, what, I, what I do like, or what I do recommend a lot to athletes, which seems to have a lot of success, is two supplements. One being magnesium, and the other being zinc. Now, the studies around these are a little bit variable. So, magnesium and zinc, in some studies, show that stage 3 sleep, or deep sleep, or slow wave sleep, as also known as well, will increase when you take these. And the thing about deep sleep is, generally about 20% of the night is made up of deep sleep. And deep sleep, as you may recall from the webinar, or for those who may not attend the webinar, is when growth hormone is released. And this is, as it suggests, as I said before, deep sleep. And so a lot of people get this mixed up with REM sleep and say that REM sleep is deep sleep. And actually, it's quite the opposite. REM sleep is nearly identical to being awake. So deep sleep is where growth hormone is released. And magnesium and zinc can help increase the, um, the quantity of that deep sleep. And one of the challenges is as we get older, uh, particularly males, we tend to have less stage three sleep or deep sleep. And so anything we can do to increase that, the better it's going to be for keeping testosterone levels within range. And many men often complain about low testosterone as they get older. And so one of the easiest ways to increase testosterone may be through increasing your stage three sleep. And one means of doing that may be by supplementation. Now, in addition, you also need to allow seven to nine hours of sleep it's not like you can go to bed for two hours and just get deep sleep and that's going to override everything every stage of sleep or every phase is important for different reasons but if you're going to look at a supplement zinc and magnesium may may assist the other reason why i like magnesium and zinc is because a lot of athletes in hot climates or when they train during the summer or the exercise in um, intense heat they often complain about um, lower limb movements prior to sleep now when you're awake you can have what's called restless leg syndrome so this urge to move your legs but when you're asleep that's called periodic leg movement disorder and so one of the easiest ways to alleviate that may be through the use of magnesium supplementation i personally recommend powder magnesium because it absorbs better through the gi tract uh, and into the system quicker and seems to have better results than a, a tablet form can be quite expensive but it will last you about three times as long as the tablet so um the economics of it does work out over time the other one which you may want to look at as well in terms of supplementation and it hasn't been well researched to my knowledge in athletes but it could be one um that has a lot of benefit is iron so um low iron supplements uh, low iron levels might require supplementation either by um you know injection or liquid or tablet iron uh, supplementation may help and again this can help with this urge to move the legs and um, may just help the person you know be slightly more calmer before sleep so the three things i recommend is zinc powder magnesium and probably liquid iron those three ones and maybe play around with those and see which ones are best but the iron also depends on your own personal level of iron uh, within your body the reason I don't mention melatonin here is because that I think a lot of people take melatonin, um, you know, just over the counter and it's they just take it as a kind of, a, oh, this will help me sleep, which isn't really true. And a couple of things about melatonin is that in general, a lot of melatonin, particularly in Australia that you buy, and in many countries, when you buy it over the counter, you actually don't know what's in it. And so if you're an athlete taking these, you don't want to get done for, for doping. Now, first of all, 
and a lot of times it'll just sound like five times or five x melatonin you don't actually know what that that is so if you're going to use melatonin um i'd advise you getting that from a from a general practitioner via prescription and the other thing is that a lot of studies show that melatonin just at home does not really help with sleep it's more of a placebo effect and there's no actual change to melatonin levels um, where melatonin probably has its greatest advantage is in regard to jet lag, which I'll speak about in a while. So hopefully that answers your question, Alex. So question two comes from uh, Nile. Nile's based in the United Kingdom as well. Any previous research on how the amount of sleep can impact on young children? Yeah, there is loads of research, uh, Nile, on young kids um, from sort of newborns to toddlers right through to those in adolescent um so you may recall from the webinar that when we're, we're when we're born you know we require lots of sleep anywhere from 14 to 16 hours as we get older we get down to about eight hours per night and that kind of stays the same then until you know basically we die so um we don't actually need less as we get older but we do need a lot when we are younger and so with young kids I presume you mean probably less than 12 years of age here. Yes, sleep can definitely impact uh, a couple of things. Obviously, a child's growth, um, learning and development, because if they're not getting that adequate overnight sleep, you know, the brain and the body is not going to repair and regrow for next day performance, whether it be in a classroom or out playing in a schoolyard or with their friends and family on the street. And um, it can it kind of impact one of the most interesting things around young children that I've seen coming out when looking at the literature is the effects of screens. A very interesting study that was published in Canada that looked at the number of screens. So basically, if a child had more than two, three, four, like more than two screens in a room, and the higher the screens went, the higher the number of screens, such as a TV, iPad, a game, uh, game console, whatever it might be, the more chance that child had less sleep and the higher chances that child was going to be obese. So it's very interesting that the more screens in a room affected sleep and then also affected obesity rates as well. So it might be a bit of a chicken and egg there, what's what's affecting which, what's affecting what in that case. But um, yes, sleep definitely uh, affects young kids. And the other thing, which is there's a lot of, lot of published papers out, is that if kids aren't getting the recommended sleep per night, and generally young kids are going to need anywhere from 8 to 10 hours at least, um, next day performance is also affected and um, in the classroom so their inability to function correctly in a cognitive perspective from a cognitive perspective and also as well there is some speculation that maybe lack of sleep is what's causing ADHD in some young kids um, and which is not surprising because we all know ourselves if we go through a bad night of sleep and the next day we might use caffeine or sugar or food as a strategy and then you know, we, we feel it, we peak and then we kind of crash. And then due to sleep deprivation, we get a little bit giddy and we get a little bit hyperactive. And that's all effects of uh, lack of sleep. So, yes, the importance of sleeping kids is, is it's very important, probably more so than adults, because they won't have the ability to override those negative effects or deal with those short-term negative impacts of them, which you may see older people or people in ultra-endurance activities or military are able to... Um, override those but kids very difficult so i hope that answers your question Nile, on young kids and sleep the next question comes from katarina and katarina is from the czech republic are short naps 30 minutes really the best way to recover or would you recommend longer napping time and would it differ from match day Okay, so the old napping question, and this is a, a fine balancing act because, so first of all, the best thing to do is to really focus on overnight sleep, having the adequate amount of time in bed to achieve seven to nine hours sleep. That's the best thing we can do. Now, failing that, if we don't get that sleep for some reason, or we're trying to uh, bank sleep, using an air quotes here, or, you know, optimize sleep before maybe a period of sleep loss, well, then napping can help. The challenge with napping is that if we nap too often, and we do it every day, we may not necessarily be able to sleep at night because the drive for sleep then is, is lessened. So if we don't 
sleep at night. Naps can be beneficial for overriding those negative effects, but may hinder the, the next sleep that may occur that night. So you're constantly pushing out the time at sleep onset, and then you get yourself into this vicious cycle of um, not having enough time at night to sleep and then relying on the nap. Now, in terms of nap day, we see in team-based sports that a lot of athletes um, increase their sleep the day before a match, and they do this by delaying the morning wake up so to try to sleep in for as long as they can so instead of getting up let's say at 8 o'clock in the morning now to try to get up at 9 or 10 o'clock and so this this helps as well if athletes do want to have a nap before a match that's completely fine if they find that relaxes them um, and gets them in the zone for that game perfectly fine what I would recommend is to be aware of what's called sleep inertia and so when we wake up from a nap, we can be groggy from anywhere from 15 minutes up to an hour, depending on the person, depending on the length of the duration of a nap, and depending on the sleep in the last 24, 48, and 72 hours. So what I would recommend is no more than 30 minutes for a nap. And when they do wake up, no activity should be scheduled for the following 60 minutes. So if you go for a nap, let's say at 3, 2 p.m., um, you wake up at... 2.30 p.m., half two in the afternoon, well then, you're not going to go and play a match, do any exercise or do anything stimulating for the next 60 minutes until at least half three or 3.30 in the afternoon. So that would be my advice around naps. Okay, uh, next question comes from Siobhan in the United Kingdom. As a PT, I often start early, finish late is napping or one long sleep a week the same as a regular eight hours uh okay so i presume you get up early maybe work from like six in the morning till 11 you're off then till five in the evening maybe you're four you got clients after work after they finish work and then you mightn't get home till about 11 so for you siobhan napping is going to be a strategy here during the day this would definitely be because you have this what we call a split shift regime um, which is not great, but working around it, definitely um, programming a nap every day. And then on the weekend, um, having maybe, let's say on a Saturday morning or a Sunday, if you can delay the time of sleep onset, sorry, delay the time of wake the next morning to, you know, make up any sleep, then that would be a useful strategy. So the answer to your question is yes, but try to have short naps um, every day throughout the week because um, that will really help you with that evening performance. Now, I've been a long time gone out of Ireland, so I hopefully I'll pronounce this name right. Kiwi? I hope so. It's been 17 years, sorry. Kiwi from Ireland asks, At what range of rest, hours of sleep, is it, da is it deemed dangerous to train, i.e. high injury risk? Yeah, this is an interesting one because um depends on what's happening so we see if athletes are continually getting less than six hours sleep a night we'll say that's kind of the, the, the cutoff so if you have athletes below six hours a night then they're definitely at risk of getting injured and if they are below six hours a night and they're doing all the right sleep hygiene and practices and principles that we 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 talk about well then maybe they might have an underlying sleep disorder which we did speak about in the webinar um and it may be dangerous to train, obviously, due to the type of activity they're doing. So, you know, running around the track is probably not going to be as dangerous as someone doing something like downhill mountain biking or skiing, where the the risk of injury is going to be a lot higher because if they make one small error, it could be lights out for them. Or even that with combat athletes. So anything under six hours, I'd be looking at athletes um, with a degree of... Uh, you know, wonder about what's happening here and trying to solve it, um, especially if it's continually happening. And obviously, the next day cognitive performance can lead to kind of, you know, slips, trips and falls, going over on ankles, falling over, mistiming, miscalculation, and so on, which will help, with, which won't help with the injury, with, with, sorry, which will lead to injury. And then obviously, if you're not getting enough um, non-REM sleep overnight for repair and recovery, you're just going to be breaking your body down over a long period of time, um, which is, you know, going to be 
pretty poor. There is no, a few studies out there on, you know, less than eight hours um, sleep a night or even less than seven hours sleep does increase the, the injury risk. Now, the other thing is when we start getting into things like military, ultra-endurance activities, people being awake for prolonged periods of time, like 30 hours, 40 hours, 50 hours, well, then you're, you're not only talking about the cumulative hours of wake, you're talking about cumulative hours of wake, lack of sleep, and time of day. Because the circadian rhythm over the course of a day has got these kind of peaks and troughs. And so if you're continually awake during activities, such as military or ultra-endurance, well then your peak periods for risk of injury is obviously going to be during darkness but then again between 2 and 7 in the morning and then again in the afternoon between 1 and 3 so hope that answers that question the next question is from Mayor based in the United Kingdom as well Mayor's question is um what are the best strategies to promote sleep in soccer players when kickoff is 8 p.m.? Um, I'm not a soccer fan. No, no, I'm just joking. Um, all right, I'm not a soccer fan, but it's the same thing for any team sport. So here, here's, we've had the same thing in rugby union and even with fighters as well in combat sports. So the best strategies to promote sleep. First of all, um, as we always say, focus on sleep night in, night out. So try to really have regular routine approach to sleep you know every night of the week scheduling for seven to nine hours however in these nighttime games it can be quite difficult to have a routine after generally in the days leading up to a game it's not too bad for players getting getting sleep unless they're traveling and have significant jet lag but mostly players are quite good at kind of optimizing or banking sleep or focusing on sleep in the days leading into these games particularly in team-based sports are sort of quite good the challenges after the game and depending on the level of the athletes there's a couple of things that's at play here is if you play let's say at 8 p.m uh what's a soccer game about 90 minutes finishes around half time probably all done and dusted by 10 p.m at the latest so then they gotta have a shower get changed possibly media have something to eat that's at least 12 o'clock so it's midnight. Now, this might be the only night to go out and have a drink. They might spend some time with their families. And so generally we see in these team-based sports when the game is at 8 o'clock, it's between anywhere from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Where, where these athletes are going to sleep. So now we're looking at recovery. So before we were looking at optimization and preparation, and now we're looking at recovery. And so what I would recommend is if a game is on a Friday night, do not schedule any early morning recovery sessions because all you're doing is reducing the amount of sleep available for those athletes or the time available. And do not have anything scheduled the next day if you can help it. And if you do have to schedule anything or you do need to meet with the team, don't do it until after lunchtime. So minimum after one o'clock the next day. And this will help at least allow athletes time to recalibrate. In addition to that, the first day back training should, should be delayed as well. And... Uh, the athletes should be, um, you should watch out for the athletes in terms of training load. So if they play on a Friday night and then they train again on a Monday, you still want to be watching the training load and not going too hard on a Monday. If at all possible, if these are professional soccer players and the kickoff is at 8pm, you should be trying to get these athletes to train in the afternoon and not in the morning because if most of the games are in the evening, you want to be trying to shift or promote those athletes to be uh, an owl chronotype which is getting up late and going to bed late. So you want to be trying to use any strategy to push them more towards evening type person persons. So I hope that helps that one. Next question is from Mohammed. Mohammed is based in the UK. Can nutritional must be can nutrition intake affect sleep? Um yeah, so like, this is an interesting one because there's heaps of new research starting up in this around shift workers and it all depends on the time you eat, depends on your hours of wake and so on. But I presume you're talking in relation to um, athletes. But even if you do have athletes who are part-time athletes or work in shift work or work in odd hours, this can significantly affect it because um, there's two hormones called leptin and ghrelin, which you're probably aware of, that control your appetite. And so depending on the time of day you're awake, 
these signals will be all messed up. So if you're working nights or you're up at four in the morning, these leptin and ghrelin levels can be significantly affected. Uh, the biggest things that we see affecting sleep um, is probably caffeine and alcohol. They're the two biggest ones we, we, when we talk about nutrition. Um, so obviously caffeine generally alerts most people. It takes about an hour to peak. We discussed this in the webinar, about an hour to peak in the system. And then the half-life is about four hours. So if you do consume caffeine after dinner, you're probably not going to initiate sleep for at least five hours. Now on top of that, if you consume alcohol after that, it might help you fall asleep, but it's going to cause more fragmentation or disruptions overnight, um, you know, and lead to frequent awakenings. The other thing as well, and I haven't really dug into this too much, but I do know that there has been some study done out of, uh, complete in the Middle East looking at the effects of um, fasting on sleep, such as Ramadan. Um, and I know that, that can lead to some negative effects on sleep and performance with athletes. And I believe there may be some research happening around sort of um, intermittent fasting and looking at sleep as well in the future, more so around shift workers and performance and not so much in athletes. Uh, it's not really well researched in athletes. There's a few things out there saying, you know, that milk can help, um, turkey, cherry tart juice. They're all fairly, um, they're interesting studies, but they use a lot of self-reported data and actigraphy data. And for something of that magnitude, you want to be looking at um, probably in-lab polysomnography and tightly controlled initially to, to really see a signal. I haven't seen anything that really affects sleep in terms of promoting sleep, um, you know, or really disrupting sleep too much without the effect of, um, without, with, with, with that being said, alcohol and caffeine, obviously, but in terms of food. Um, and then the other thing you often hear is people go, oh, if I have a big meal, a big bowl of pasta, I fall asleep. You're only falling asleep because you're going into some sort of pre-diabetic coma early and you're just full and uh, you're having difficulty digesting that doesn't actually help you sleep it's not um you know it's the food is not doing anything crazy to your brain interesting enough somebody uh, for those of you who might be interested in history some of the early greek philosophers uh, socrates and aristotle actually thought that vapors from food were released from your stomach travel up into your brain and made you sleepy and um, that that is completely wrong as we now know but uh, some people still believe that to be the case. Anyway, Mohammed, hopefully that answers your question on nutritional effects on sleep. Next question is from Sarah in the United Kingdom. Can you clarify what you mean by athlete and to what extent your principles apply to non-professional athletes? Yeah, I don't know what I mean by an athlete because it changes everywhere you go. So we use the word highly trained athlete uh, which is generally used, well, this varies. So <laughs> it's generally used for amateur athletes who behave like elites. So Olympians, for example. And then you have elite athletes who are fully professional. So you have those. And then you have uh, non-professional athletes who I would say are serious. So you've got three levels. You got elite athletes at the top, professional, highly trained athletes who are like Olympians who train like professionals but don't get paid, and then you have serious non-professionals. I put myself in that category, running marathons, ultra marathons, martial arts, wherever it might be, and just trying to do the best I can for myself. And then you have probably others in there as well. Now, when you go to the states, someone who in the United States, someone who exercises five times a week calls themselves an athlete and so this varies wherever you go um, but to answer your question the principles and the science that we speak about here where athletes or non-athletes is the same there's no sort of athlete gene that people have that gives them different powers for sleep or not sleeping and so what we talk about here in sleep science for sleep and performance the fundamental like 80% of what we talk about here fundamentally is the same in non-athletes it's the same in people working shift work. When I consult into mining, oil and gas, rail and construction, it's the same. When I speak to people about sleep in children, it's the same. And so it's the same no matter where we go. So, yeah, 
I don't know if there is a complete definition on athlete and non-professional athlete. Um, yeah, hard to get one, I think, across different different countries, different sports. But interesting question about determining sort of the level of a, of a person and, and where they're performing at. Theodorus, I think is how I pronounce the name, United Kingdom. Current gaps in research with regards to sleep and elite team sport athletes' well-being. Okay, there's lots of gaps, heaps. So in the last few years, there has been lots of research, um, you know, occurring in sleep and athletes since probably about 2010. I've seen a massive spike, which is great, but there's still a lot we can do. Where I think some of the, the research is at the moment is sleep disorders. Um, I'm continually surprised when I speak to sports scientists, people with elite athletes, um, and even elite athletes around sleep disorders. And generally you get a couple of answers. One is to think just it's obstructive sleep apnea is the only disorder. And that's only related to being fat or overweight. And then the other thing people go, the other thing people say as well, yeah, but I train so I don't have a disorder. And again, back on the last point is just because you're an athlete or you're highly trained doesn't mean you're not at risk of having a sleep disorder. So... You know, that's that's where I think there's a massive, um, you know, gap in the research. We have a paper in review at the moment, which is the first ever level one or in-lab study to be done that we know of in athletes. And other than that, there's like less than five studies that have been done using any sort of um, sleep disorders measurement devices. And some are very specific. Some when you look at just obstructive sleep apnea because of the the level um, of the of the polysomnography that they used. And then the rest are like questionnaire based, which are really not very good for determining sleep disorders in in a in a group. So sleep disorders is a massive area that needs to be um researched. So if anybody's get into sleep research, please look at sleep disorders. Um the other one is electronic devices. Whilst there's a lot of talk about electronic devices in the general population, there's very little in athletes again. And um I led a study in judo where we the judo athletes in Australia where we removed electronic devices from athletes. We didn't find any effect. Madison Jones, um, who I worked on a paper with her, she did the same in uh, in laboratory polysonography where she removed uh, electronic devices or randomized different things to athletes such as reading magazines, reading on an iPad, reading a boring magazine, reading a stimulating magazine. And Madison took saliva samples looking at melatonin and cortisol levels and she found no no change in it. However, many of the general population studies will talk about changes in sleep onset latency. And some of those papers, whilst they found statistical significance, so group A may have fallen asleep in 10 minutes and group B with electronic devices may have fallen asleep in 18 minutes, so whilst there might be a statistical difference between the two groups, it's not clinically significant because if you fall asleep in under 20 minutes, there's actually no problem with that sleep onset latency. So that's another area that I think needs to be researched as well. And the final one um, would be around ultra-endurance athletes and events. Um, very little done in ultra-marathons where athletes are awake anywhere from, you know, in a, thir- in a, hundred, a 100k race ending from 10 hours of running through to 24 hours of running and in 100 mile races anywhere from being awake from 18 hours to 48 hours i think there's a whole host of research can be done around that around decision making cognitive function quite difficult to do in the field but will be quite beneficial and uh, that would also cross over really nicely into military as well particularly in infantry uh, special forces those type of people are long range reconnaissance so I hope that helps in terms of uh, current gaps in the research. Also as well, if you head over to my site, Theodorus, sleepforperformance.com.au, you can download my PhD thesis. And uh, there's a fairly large lit review in there. So if you're bored and you want to read something, um, head in there and you can you can see all the, the sort of the, the latest and greatest papers and um, have a read of that if you wish. Next question comes from Colin in Ireland. From Carlo. 
does sleep requirement change or just the type of sleep during high volume training periods how is this best managed that's an interesting question um, and it depends on the athlete so some athletes over time if they get kind of adapt, adapt to a, a certain training regime they sleep fine and they just might need seven hours a night but if they're changing to a different type of regime they may need more hours of sleep a personal example here is myself I've been running for 20 odd years the last 10 years doing ultra marathons um, you know and going out and running for four or five hours at a time in the hills with a backpack come home feel fine sleep seven to eight hours wake up next morning feel okay but the last two months I started swimming and if I do like two k's in the pool I come home and it's like you know someone has beaten me to an inch of my life I'm so tired and I need about 10 hours sleep and I've really noticed an increase in my sleep so it could be related to the type of activity you're doing but also as you, as you suggest in the question if it's high volume training period so if it's in season as well then they may need more sleep and um, obviously it depends on a number of other factors like travel and jet lag heat cold um, so how is this best managed well I think just really focusing on giving people or athletes to change it, the sorry the the chance or the availability in between training sessions to rest so for athletes I'd recommend minimum 12 hours between sessions so if an athlete's leaving you know at seven o'clock in the evening definitely not coming back in until seven o'clock the next morning and if you really want to focus on a 14 hours will be best between them but that's a that's an interesting question there uh, column because I think that needs to be looked at as well across seasons um, and 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 the effect of training load on sleep it's a really good that would be actually a really nice study so come back onto the theodorus's point uh, before maybe add that to the gaps as well it's a really that's a really nice question uh, michelle biggins from ireland how can we trust actigraphy data from a third party i.e fatigue science versus raw actigraphy data now michelle if i didn't know better i would think you were setting me up here to answer this question perfectly because yours truly has conducted the only published validated paper looking at the ready band from fatigue science versus other actigraphy data and polysomnography. So there you go. <laughs> we had that published in Sleep and Biological Rhythms Journal. So we basically had 50 middle-aged people come into the lab. They were hooked up for overnight polysomnography in the lab on the wrist that had the Actigraph device, as in the Actigraph brand. They also had the ready band, another device, put on the wrist too. And so we had that one night in the lab for all 50. 50 people. Then they were released from the lab to do as they saw fit throughout the week. And they had, we had an additional seven nights at home where they wore the two devices. So we had this lovely in-lab three devices, PSG, Actigraph and the ready band and then we had them at home wearing the Actigraph and the ready band and you'd be pleased to know that the ready band and the third party scoring app behaved the very same as the actigraphy devices for time at sleep onset sleep duration and time awake so for those three measures for the Actigraph and the ready band excellent the, the, the noise or the problem lies within the following it's around sleep latency, the time to fall asleep. And it's a Goldilocks story here because the actigraph, which actually requires people to self-report sleep onset latency, was completely way off, underestimated the time it took them to fall asleep, whilst the ready band overestimated. And so the PSG was right in the middle which is the gold standard so we take that and so the problem with the sleep latency is you know across the two devices so one way around that would be to get um, more robust measures around time at lights out or time to initiate sleep which would help with the calculation of sleep latency because if you get the calculation of sleep latency slightly wrong then it affects the measure of sleep efficiency and also time in bed but for those three measures, um, those two devices work well against PSG for time at sleep onset, sleep duration and time awake. 
but for the other measures both devices are are fairly out compared to PSG but a lot of devices are are, are similar as well so um you can trust the data from fatigue science you can use it in your studies and the automated scoring uh, app is is very good to use and I'd highly recommend it and the other good thing about the ready band is that I like and for those of you working with athletes is that it's virtually indestructible so it's encased in rubber you can bounce it off the ground um you know it's water resistant the whole lot it's a really good device compared to uh, the general actograph devices and I really wish the other actograph devices and Fitbits and all these would get a bit more robust so you could use them in different applications so hopefully that answers your question Michelle uh, again like on the last question or the one before that you can download that paper uh, as part of my PhD thesis on my website sleepforperformance.com.au it's one of the chapters in there so you can have a look at that there it's got all the data, the tables, the Blant Altman plots everything's in there so hopefully that helps next question comes from Rudger in United Kingdom how do you get more slow wave sleep what if after analyzing the sleep cycles that although sleep you stay in your light sleep alright so uh, I don't know if you heard it quite um, if you recall from the webinar Rucker, but um, sleep cycle apps are crap so any of those phone phone apps you're downloading that have sleep cycle apps don't even look at them um, the only way the only data that you could start looking at is if you're wearing uh, a device on your body that is measuring your heart rate and is using heart rate variability to say whether you're in deep sleep or light sleep I think it is like such as the Fitbit so you could do that other than that I wouldn't believe ending off those sleep cycle apps especially if you're getting them for free your phone is a communication device not a medical device um, but also to answer your question about how to get more slow wave sleep or how to optimize it it comes back to that first question on the supplementation so you might want to look at supplementation as well to help with slow wave sleep next question comes from Valerie from Ireland how to deal with jet lag oh Valerie might need about two hours because uh, this is really an economics question it depends it depends on so many factors it depends on the time of day you leave depends on the time of day you arrive depends on layovers depends on the direction depends on numerous things so basically if you're traveling in the eastwardly direction it's going to be more difficult if you're traveling a westwardly direction it's going to be easier to adapt in general if you're traveling north to south, so you're going from somewhere like London, Johannesburg, you're not going to have jet lag. You're just going to have probably tiredness and sleep deprivation. So if you're traveling within the same time zone or, or even plus or minus one or two hours, you're not going to have much jet lag. So that, that really depends on a number of those factors. Um, what I would say to you there, Valerie, is to head over to my website, sleepforperformance.com.au. You can download a free book on managing sleep and jet lag. It's about... 30 odd pages you can download that there and that goes into detail around different scenarios and how to do that so that may help you um, with some of those questions around managing jet lag um, so there's a number of different factors there about managing you know adaptation to a new time zone next question is from Garrett uh, sorry excuse me Andrew Andrew um, Andrew asks I am interested in the sleep strategies employed for prolonged military excursions. Oh, I don't know if there is any really. So when I first started off my career in the military and infantry, wasn't much sleep strategies really, um, unless it's changed now. But I think it probably also depends on the age of the uh, of the combatant. <laughs> so we were quite young and silly, and too interested in being cool. Um, so some sleep strategy, a paper actually came out two years ago by uh, author Yarnell, and that showed that special forces operatives out of the US um, were using sleep optimization in the days leading into um, a deployment. So for example, if soldiers were going to go away for a 10-day mission 
for approximately a week before that, they will be optimizing sleep by sleeping up to 10 hours a night or having 10 hours in bed. So really, that's one of the best things you can do um, prior to these um, sleep deprivation periods. Um, for those of you not familiar, in military training or um, military tactics, you may go on an exercise, excursions as Andrew calls them here, don't be excursions that are <laughs> excursions that are a bit more pleasant um and you may be awake for anywhere up to you know 96 hours straight um whilst carrying a lot of gear particularly in infantry roles you could be carrying 50 kilos between your own gear radios weapons and so on and you could be walking ending up to from 5 to 20 k's a day or you could be just in a specific location digging into the ground digging trenches um so it can be quite taxing physically as well you're also sleeping outside, so you're not getting complete or proper recovery and rest. And on top of that, you're probably not even getting the time to get sleep. So a lot of napping occurs in that as well. So first of all, I'd say leading into it is sleep optimization or sleep banking. And then on top of that, I would say during that period of, of wakefulness, trying to get naps whenever you can is, is really the only strategy. And then using caffeine strategically to stay awake. It's very difficult um, to do this, um, but during those hours of wakefulness, you're going to have to use probably caffeine, focus on adequate nutrition, which can be hard again because you're giving sort of ration packs in these military activities. It's not always the best. Um, it can be quite uncomfortable on the stomach after a few days as well, but definitely focus on adequate hydration. And if you have the opportunity to sleep, even for 20 minutes, take it while you can. Grab as much should I as possible. Um, caffeine is used a lot. You see this a lot in the military in the in the US. Lots of research on caffeine, which can you know support performance. There's also been studies done using amphetamines, but caffeine is the is the best strategy to help with these uh, prolonged hours of wakefulness. Um, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. So that's all I got time for in this episode of listener questions from the. Um, recent webinar there is other questions that i will address in the second one um, hopefully i've given enough detail around these feel free to email me as well if you want further clarification um, around this on ian dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au okay until next time sleep well and train well